Hello. Before we get down to cinema, I would like to draw your attention to our Patreon. Regular listeners will know that these podcasts are supported by Quad, our home cinema in Derby, UK. But as Quad is a charity, we want to make Cinelet as self-sustainable as possible. So, to that end, we have set up a two-tier way in which you can support Cinelit. For our 35mm Cinefans, you'll get a bonus additional episode each month where we will be deep diving into an area of cinema that will be exclusive to Patreon subscribers for at least six months before it arrives like a late dinner guest on the regular feed. Plus, you get the episodes a week in advance of the main feed release. But if you want to support us and don't feel that pressing need to have the additional podcast each month, but still want that warm, satisfying feeling of being part of the Cinelit success story then you can become an 8mm Cinefan, where you can donate and get our heartfelt thanks. Head over to the Patreon page and subscribe if you can. However, we know that times are hard at the moment, so please do not feel you need to subscribe if you are not able. We'll still be putting out new, free-to-listen-to episodes on a regular basis throughout the year. Now let's get back to your regular scheduled broadcast. Welcome to another meta-referencing episode of CineLit. Today we are returning to the world of England Screaming, one of our most successful podcasts, and we are discussing the new book by Sean Hogan, Twilight's Last Screaming. I'm joined by regular CineLit historian Daryl Buxton, whose expertise no doubt will be put to the test today. But rather than just myself and Daryl banging on about the book, we are joined by the author Sean Hogan as well. Hello, Sean. Hello, very pleased to be here. Yes, we were delighted to have you on. We, we, the first book came out in 2020 and we just started the podcast fairly early on. And then obviously the world went to hell in a handbasket. And it seemed like at one point in the middle of the year, all of my Facebook friends were unwrapping yet books of England screaming and put it on, put it on their feet. I couldn't avoid it for like a two week period where everyone I knew had that book. Well, it was really gratifying because, you know, as, as you might expect, suddenly realizing that you're going to launch a book in the middle of a worldwide pandemic, you know, was a bit nerve wracking. I just kind of thought, well, no one's going to know about this book. No one's going to read it. it. You know, there was a launch event planned for it, which got canceled um and i just thought well uh i've you know i've finally written this book and now it's gonna like die on its ass so it was really gratifying that people actually found it i suppose one of those converse things where it's just like yeah but a lot of people have a lot of free time on their hands to sit and read something so it, they probably read it quicker than maybe normally a book like this sometimes it gets released and it trickles through into the consciousness and people take the time to read it it seemed like everyone read it immediately yeah, I mean, that's true. And I guess, I, you know, it, uh, people obviously seem to like it, which, again, you know, it was it was the first sort of proper book I'd written and I had no idea how it was going to be received. You know, it was just mm. this odd, odd thing that I'd always wanted to write and finally done. But I had no idea that people would respond as well as they did. Yeah, no, when we said we, we, we covered it on our podcast fairly early doors and we, we, we loved it. And obviously, we'll do it on different levels, Daryl being the uber... Uber, Uber film fan was reading it and getting all the references. I'm sat there with Google as my friend on the way through, and that was the same with the new book as well. Yeah, so 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 we we we're big fans here. Obviously, we brought you up to to Paris Cinema Film Festival to talk about the book as well. We enjoyed it a lot, and 
one of the things we were talking about is, well, well where's he going to go next? I mean, we both read Three Mothers, One Father as well. And that kind of like hints towards what you were doing in the new book. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I didn't know that I would ever write any more. You know, when I finished the first two books, uh, England Screaming was was just kind of something I, you know, whose time had come. I was like, right, I'm finally going to write this book that I, I, I've thought about for years. And the the opportunity to write Three Mothers, One Father kind of came up almost by accident. And I thought, oh, well, that'll be a nice little companion piece. Um, and I, you know, I really had no particular plan at that point of writing anymore. And it was just basically when England Screaming took off, I suddenly thought, well, you know, there is room for another one because when I'd originally thought about writing this kind of book back in the day, I'd first thought about doing American genre cinema just because a lot of that was so formative for me. When I first had the fantasy about writing this book, I kind of thought, well, I initially thought it would be America. But then when I sat down to do it, America just seemed too vast. There were too many films. And because I hadn't, really got to grips with what I was doing yet it suddenly seemed more achievable to start with England um so then having done that and kind of having taught myself how to write this kind of book I suddenly thought oh well you know if there's an audience for it I can now do America and I knew it was going to be a bigger book and it was going to be an epic and all this kind of thing but I suddenly thought all right well I'm I'm, I'm finally going to do it but at the same time I wanted to sort of finish what I'd started. So it does kind of conclude the story that was started in England Screaming, just because I didn't want to sort of end up in a situation where I was just like dragging it out and just writing more and more without any real need or desire to. That isn't to say I won't do more, but I just wanted to make make sure that I kind of reached a certain stopping point with this book, even though there could well be more. Yeah, I mean, so so I mean, obviously, Daryl, you're 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 a massive expert on the film, way more than I. I, I I'm I'm sitting here with Google as my friend during this, and every time anyone's name's mentioned in full, I'm googling that name because it's, it's bound to be a reference. I'm googling that name. Okay, I haven't seen that film, but I have seen that film, and so I'm I've got a list now as long as my arm of films to watch. Yeah, well, Sean, Sean, how do you feel about that? When when you're sort of writing these things, because you do take some deep dives every now and then, you know. I mean, in, in England, Screaming, you're covering some of the big hitter films and in, in the new book, uh, Twilight, we've got all of the sort of well-known slasher movies and uh, a lot of big American cinema in there. But then you, you turn a page and you, you're talking about something like uh, February or um, or about Poor Pretty Eddie or something like that. You know, do you have the audience in mind? Do you have your readership in mind when you're doing that? And and what's, what's your sort of feeling and, and approach about all that, about whether or not you should take a deep dive every now and then? I, I'm not really writing for an audience so much as... On the one hand, you know, I, I, I do then the books are never intended to be a kind of best of necessarily. I do like to try and be representative and, and pick out things I think are important. So on the, on the one hand, it's, it's kind of a survey of the sort of breadth of genre cinema. But on the other hand, you know, there, there are sometimes films crop up in there that I'm not necessarily a huge fan of and just yeah. kind of work as a piece of the puzzle. I, I suppose um, it is, it's, what, it's what fits the narrative. Yeah, absolutely. And, and because that narrative 
often develops quite organically. I mean, I, there's a lot about these books that is quite unplanned. And now that I feel kind of more comfortable with what I'm doing, I increasingly found that kind of characters were wandering in that I had no idea they were ever going to turn up. You know, especially some of the little kind of cameo appearances along the way. These characters would just turn up and I was like, I had no idea they were going to wander into this story. I mean, yeah. I, 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 lo I love that. I love that. Uh, I mean, one, one of my favourite examples, what wasn't even a character, it was a situation. It's, it's where you've got um, uh, William Shatner's character from The Intruder. And he's, he's not only do you have him working on a radio station, but he's working on WUSA, you know, from, from another movie, from the Paul Newman movie. So, uh, yeah, I mean, how, how satisfying is it for you when these ideas and these links pop into your head it must be it must be so creatively uh, satisfying for you and uh, as, as part of the process that you're going through yeah it can be like a real sort of eureka moment when you find something like that because it's it it, it, it almost feels like it's meant to be it's like of course this character would meet that character and it's, it just it just feels so natural when that happens when this is kind of spark i mean uh, you know to go back to what i was saying a moment ago about this being unplanned I remember when I was writing the um, the Let's Scare Jessica to Death story and I sort of knew that was one of the first pieces I wrote for it and I kind of had the vague what the story was going to be in my head but I had no idea that Warren Oates was going to show up in it and so when he kind of like drove up the road I was like oh um, you know GTO from two yeah fantastic that that was one that was one of my all the way through the book. I was sort of putting the book down every now and then and sort of cheering every few pages because one of my favourites. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to ask you about the Let's Scare Jessica to Death chapter in some detail, actually, because there's a, a brilliant sort of conceit that you do in that um, where. At the start of every chapter, as readers will know, you, you sort of name the, the main character that it's going to be about, although you do then go off on tangents through through the story. But you name the main character who's like your inspiration for, for the chapter. Then you, you name the actor that played them. And then you, you name the director of the film. And here, of course, you, you put directed by John Hancock. And I love the fact that um, during the course of this chapter, not only do we meet GTO and various other characters along the way, but um, you you introduce Jessica into the world of Jaws two, and it's yeah. not it's not the Jaws two that we know and love, and that we all went to see at the cinema in 1978. It's the Jaws two that John Hancock started out to make uh, in a sort of morally and financially bankrupt uh, amity. And, and you set your that portion of the story in this run-down, destroyed amity that, that's John Hancock's amity. So it connects with the uh, the fact that he directed Let's Scare Jessica to Death. And then in a later chapter, you even bring the name John Hancock back because, of course, it's, it, it's part of that sort of familiar colloquial phrase, signing your John Hancock, signing your name. And you have that in the register at Psycho. So uh, it, it, you know, I'm, I'm reading this and thinking he's, he's not just throwing this together. Yeah, I mean, there are, you know, there's part of part of the fun of it is kind of playing these little meta games. And, and that, I, you know, I remember that I was I was having a conversation with a friend of mine. And he was asking, because I was just sort of like in the early, very early stages of starting the new book, and we were talking about it. And I, and it was literally in the course of the conversation to him, I was like, oh, ha ha, I could, I could do Let's Go Jessica to Death and then incorporate the Jaws 2 that should have been into it. And yeah. I was like, yeah, I could actually do that. 
and so it just, that again that just happened it popped into my head very randomly and i was like oh of course yeah i can do that yeah and another thing you're very good at in in this particular chapter and and several others is is really getting inside the heads of the characters and you you're almost writing them in some cases better than the original authors did and the original script writers and i think it's the case with jessica i think you really really capture the voice of uh, travis bickle as well when when you mm-hmm. do the chapter that that's based around taxi driver and eyes of laura mars and uh, Again, it 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 just seems miraculous to us that that you suddenly become Paul Schrader for half an hour. You know, and, uh, I mean, how, how do you how 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 much of a challenge is it for you when you're trying to get in in inside the head or 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 recreate the voice of a familiar film character? Well, I mean, it's very flattering that you say that. I mean, it is a challenge, but it's also one of the most fun things about doing it. I mean, obviously. You know, when I'm when I'm sort of prepping these books, I'll sit down and have a list of films and I'll re-watch everything and take notes and, and note down pieces of dialogue and things like that. And it's, you know, it's like an act of ventriloquism. You're sort of inhabiting the films, trying to take on the voices of the characters. And it's something I really, really enjoy doing. And, you know, having started out as a as a screenwriter, I'm sort of used to writing for characters and trying to give them their individual voices but this is, yeah, this is kind of the next step entirely. And it's, you know, obviously it helps that you've got these things to refer back to. And so you're just trying to, like, get an ear for how these characters would speak and reproduce it on the page. But, yeah, I mean, it really is one of the most fun things to do. I mean, in this book, I suppose I kind of went a step further with the American Psycho chapter. In, and it wasn't just trying to ape a character. It was trying to an ape, ape an author. I wanted yeah, to write the, the writing style. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which, again, I think you do tremendously. You, 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 you become Bateman and you become Brett Easton Ellis in, in the space of a few pages. It really does read. You, you, you could almost insert that chapter in, into American Psycho, I think. Uh, and I, I, again, I love the fact that you uh, you introduce Bateman's love of, uh, of Brian De Palma into that as well, and uh, which we're we're both big De Palma fans. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's really sort of like American Psycho is a pretty meta book in the first place, so sure, it's just sure. kind of like piling meta upon meta. Was <laughs> <laughs> well, so just just speaking on that, obviously, because initially these these books are sort of build as like creating a shared universe for all your favorite movie characters kind of thing but a lot of these characters are literary characters initially you know you think of it like obviously with with, with bateman and um a lot of the stephen king ones and things like the omen for instance these are all characters that were originated in novels that are coming back to prose in some ways was there any thought that you think maybe more well, actually maybe some of these characters i shouldn't touch because they're not film they're 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 their own they're their own prose i i never really worried about that it they're they're all feel like kind of fair game to me i mean you know in um david thompson's book suspects which you know was the kind of provided the inspiration for me to start on these things in the first place the same is true of them there are a lot of characters in, in that book that are literary characters sure. you've got Marlowe and you Jack Torrance and all sorts of characters in that. So that never really bothered me. I try to generally just stick to what's in the films. I will occasionally go back to the books and pull out little tidbits that are useful. 
but I'll generally sort of stick with the movie versions rather than the book versions. Yeah, yeah. I, I suppose one one um, one example of that is of, of the reverse of that is when you do the chapter on uh, R.J. McCready from the Thing, and and reveal that in 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 his younger life he was a character who's perhaps better known as a literary character than than a a, a, a film one. Although I, I think. Um, uh, the story is what's it called? Silent Snow, Secret Snow, is yeah. it? And, and, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That was filmed for Night Gallery, but uh, on TV. But it's it's much better known as a short story. And there you are with R.J. McCready as as this snow loving kid. You know, you you mentioned the uh, the Thompson uh, novel Suspects, and of course. Mm-hmm. Doing American cinema gives you the chance to do your own little mini version of that within the uh, Twilight. In that, um, I suppose you 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 got to the point where you you wanted to include and and the, the narrative progresses from way back. You go centuries back in this one, which we'll talk about. But of course, at some point, you get up to the nineteen thirties, forties, and fifties, and. I suppose you have two choices there. You either go down the the Bella Lugosi Boris Karloff route and have mad scientists and and weird monsters and things coming in. You go down the other way and you seem to locate the heart of film horror in the 1940s as being in film noir. And it gives you the chance to introduce a lot of noir favourites. Do you feel that film noir actually hit the heart of horror rather better than conventional horror did in the 1940s? Yeah, I think that's certainly true to an extent. I mean, there are there are a couple of things really. Sort of like on the one hand, a lot of earlier sort of Hollywood horror is kind of set in the same ersatz Europe that a lot of the hammers are, are set in, which is kind of why in England screaming, I didn't really go back into the Gothic hammers that much. And it's the same thing here. It's like they're all set in this kind of weird European netherworld that doesn't really exist. So that was kind of one reason not to use them. But yeah, on the other hand, part of what I wanted to do in this book, which I think was true to an extent with England Screaming, but England Screaming, but more so now, is I wanted to sort of look at the notion of kind of what horror is. And I've never been particularly interested in like limiting things within strictly generic parameters. So to me, it's sort of like, yeah, some of those noirs are as as bleak and as, you know, terrifying, if not more so than certainly a lot of the horror films of that period. And that kind of continues all the way up into the modern day. You know, obviously a very important film sort of lurking throughout this book is the parallax view. Now, no one can tell me that the parallax view isn't to some extent a horror movie. Because it is, because it posits this world where, like, they really are out to get you and there's no way you can get away, you know. And that, to me, is completely a horror film. It may not be a genre horror film, but it it ties in. And I think of the same is true with a lot of the noir stuff, you know, like something like Nightmare Alley, again, is a borderline horror movie. Yeah, I, I guess when, when, when you bring this into the 70s, as you say, you've got, you've got the, the paranoid thriller of the 70s, which, again, probably hits horror better than conventional horror films you know um three days of the condor is a better horror movie than blackula or something you know and also in in that early 70s period and late moving through from the late 60s i guess with easy rider you've got you've got the 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 road movie sort of thing the, the 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 long journey across america and that feeds a lot in in into your book as well um i love the chapter where you 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 sort of 
you 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 cram together uh, David Mann from Jewel and John Ryder from The Hitcher, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, um, and uh, you've got the 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 ultimate hitchhiker and the ultimate uh, ultimate hitcher picker upper, you know. It's it's remarkable that you, you you sort of seem to identify something in their names that they're both sort of every man type names, you know, and uh, and and again, it's it, it, it's finding horror at, at, at the core of a genre that that isn't necessarily Michael Myers slashing people up. You know, it's something a little bit different. Yeah, and you know, finding linkages. I mean, I have no idea whether Duel was an influence on the Hitcher or not, but it, it they, they certainly seem to sort of tap in to the same kind of ideas and the same kind of feelings about the kind of, you know, the roads and highways of America. So, you know, it just, it's instances like that, you just think, of course I should bring those two together because they're kind of dealing with the same thing. And it would be interesting to just play them off against each other and see what happens. Yeah. yeah I really, I really enjoyed the, the Bill, the Bill Pullman character transcending, you know, transcending those two movies, last seduction and, um, Lost Highway. Lost Highway. Thank you. God, brain's going. Last, last night. I just love that because obviously Lost Highway just links into that perfectly. You know, with the looping of the characters, and you just think, oh my god, why hasn't why hasn't that been done before? And it's like, well, because no one's doing this kind of stuff, I guess. Yeah. Um, I, I think my my favourite sort of obvious link in in the book, and it's it, it's one that's so obvious, Sean, that you you don't you don't even address it on the page. You just sort of leave it lying there and let us discover it. Is but I'm I'm sure this must have been intentional. Is um, you write about high plains drifter, and of course one one thing you do there is reveal that the the, the, the Clint Eastwood's character transforms decades later into Dirty Harry. But I think the genius thing about this is you 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 mention that high plains drifter, the the town in that movie that becomes hell that Clint yeah. paints red and turns into hell. Is is called Largo, and you you never you you just drop that name on the page, and you never really refer to it in any sort of context. But of course, we're all reading that, thinking that place name sounds familiar. You know, it's <laughs> oh, it's, it's Mar- Mara Largo, you know, uh, um, which brings us on to my question, I guess. You know, and you you can sort of comment on that Largo Mara Largo thing if you like. But I suppose the the, the question I want to ask is. Is this a book about Donald Trump? Or if it's if it's not, how difficult was it to make it not? <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, it kind of unavoidably is. But at the same time, you don't want to lay it on too thick. I mean, it was kind of too, per- you know, when Trump was elected, everyone immediately started making Greg Stilson jokes. And it was kind of too perfect not to do that. But at the same time, it's like, you know, when I when I started writing England Screaming, I didn't really know what kind of book it was going to be. And it eventually became clear to me that what I was doing was writing about the here and now. And I was and I was writing about the current state of England and everything that was going on at the time. But it was very important to me never to mention Brexit or anything like that, because you you don't want to tie a book too specifically to a time and place. And you don't want it to just be about that. But that was certainly what kind of was kind of informing it. So when it came to time to do this book, I was like, all right, well, I'm going to continue on in that vein. And so it it seems almost too perfect not to use Stilson and and obviously to use him in that way. 
but you don't ever want to lay it on too thick. Again, it was sort of like little little resonances throw themselves up like like the Lego thing. But it's enough that it's there. You don't ever just want to harp on it because, you know, it's, you don't want to hit people over the head with this stuff. It's like it's there if you want it. You don't have to take it. Hopefully the story works on its own anyway. But part of the point of these books is to sort of look at, you know, the state of the world and of these different countries through the lens of genre cinema because so much of what genre cinema does is kind of tap into the zeitgeist and the sort of collective subconscious and all that kind of thing. And so you, you want to use them as a lens to look at this stuff. Yeah, yeah. But you just don't ever want to be too obvious about it, even though it's like, yeah, I mean, of course, Stilson represents the same sort of thing as Trump. He's not meant to be Trump, but he's meant to be symptomatic of the same kind of thing that produced Trump. Yeah, I, I guess the key texts are, are things like, you know, um, Orwell's Animal Farm and 1984 never go out of date, do they? Because yeah. he, he did the same. He didn't make specific references. And you're, you're sort of following in that line. So uh, these books will will remain current. You know, this this sort of stuff, you know, this sort of dystopian stuff and this sort of downbeat stuff, unfortunately, never does go out of date. Yeah, <laughs> unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I just 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 looking at the the, the, the three pieces as, as a whole, I feel like I, you said the, the the first book it was you writing your way into discovering how to write a book. It definitely feels that by even by like three mothers, it was like the through thread of a, of a story was much stronger in that one and in Twilight Streaming than it maybe was in in, in England Screaming as, as, as maybe it's just a, a, apocalyptic endings of the, of the other two make it feel like that's the capper, isn't it? But it definitely feels like, okay, we're building it, we're building a building it. And, and the, the story's like, it felt much more like the stories were building on each other in Twilight slash Screaming. Maybe, maybe not some of them, but most of them felt like, okay, there's a little bit there that I need to remember, and there's a little bit there that I need to remember, and then obviously some of the main characters. But you just felt like you, you definitely felt more like a novel. Was that, okay, was, that, right. was that a deliberate decision, or just you've just written your way into that? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 mean, I, I suppose part of it is just kind of having a better grasp on what I'm doing now and, mm. and sort of sitting down. You know, I, was, I, I wrote it the same way. I didn't, you know, I had kind of certain points that I knew I was going to hit but at the same time you know I was watching films as I was writing it and so sometimes a story would suggest itself you know and it would just kind of cohere quite organically you know and certain things would get thrown up without me knowing they were going to happen and there were certain points that I knew I had to hit but I didn't necessarily know how I was going to hit them so they were written in much the same way. I mean, it's funny you say that because I remember um, my publisher, Steve Shaw, when he when he read the Twilight's Last Screaming, he said exactly the opposite. He At first, he, he said he thought that it didn't seem it was as much of a coherent story, although it did, it did gradually sort of come together. But that's kind of by design, I suppose, because this book, it kind of abandons the main story for a while and, and and does sort of a potted history of America and then gradually brings the main story back into focus. Yeah. But, you know, maybe it's just, yeah, me getting more experienced at writing them and knowing exactly what I'm doing. I mean, I mean the smaller books do tend to have more of a through line just because they're smaller and there's yeah. not enough, there's not as much room to sprawl. So that was kind of true of Three Mothers and it's, 
true to an extent of the of the next one that's coming as well. There's another little adjunct book coming in the next few months about Australian genre cinema. Oh, wow. Do, do, you, know, do you know, Sean, <laughs> I, I, was, I was going to ask if you were going to cover Australia because I've been thinking a lot about Australian links myself recently. I'm, I'm so, so pleased to hear that. And, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd actually got questions about that to ask you, which I, <laughs> I now don't need to ask. So I'm, I'm really, really looking forward to that. Now, you, you just mentioned Steve Shaw there for Black Shook. And um, how much can you tell us about what what happened with the book? Because uh, PS were, were going to publish it yep. and then didn't. And Steve came in very late on and took it on. So um, are there things that you can't tell us about that? Or can can you give us the full story there about what happened? I mean, I can give you the broad strokes. I don't want to sort of like tell tales out of school too much. Sure. And the, the the publishers themselves of PS have actually now apologised to me for what happened and how it happened. But essentially, you know, cut a long story short, the editor who commissioned Twilight's Last Screaming then basically handed it over to someone else, to another editor, to kind of see through the publication. I don't think the other editor understood it at all. And it was kind of left very till the last minute. No one apparently sort of read the book. I I sort of handed it in last October. And I don't think anyone even looked at the book until like March. And then all of a sudden I get this panicked phone call saying, well, you know, this book's, we can't publish this book. There's problems with copyright and all this kind of thing. And, you know, I spent an hour on the phone sort of saying, but everything you're saying about this book is true of the first book. (laughs) And I was told that no, 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 this this new book is much more expansive and, and, and you shouldn't publish it and all this kind of thing. And eventually I was kind of left saying, well, what, what are we talking about here? Uh, Are you asking me to look at certain chapters that you think are problematic or, or what? And essentially, I was told, unless you get permissions for everything in the book, then we can't publish it. Okay. And I was like, well, that's impossible. And it's never going to happen. Mm. And it's and it's ludicrous that you're even asking me this now when when you're when the first book is still in print and it's been in print for two years and you're still selling it. So but that was what I was told. And so I just kind of put the phone down and immediately rang up Steve Shaw and said, look, this has happened. Are you interested? And he was like, absolutely. What do we need to do to make it happen? And so, you know, hats off to him. He took the book on with, you know, no time to spare. It was originally obviously meant to launch at Chillicon, which happened a couple of weeks ago. Steve said, if you still want it to launch there, we can do that. And so we basically spent a very intensive couple of weeks sort of proofing it and typesetting it and everything and doing all the stuff that should have been done. And we we got it there, you know, and luckily, you know, Graham Humphreys had delivered his cover artwork, uh, but he owned the rights to it. So we could just use that. So it all worked out in the end. And, you know, as I say, uh, PS themselves have since apologized to me for what happened. I think they were they were they were given bad advice and they admit to that now. Mm. So we've kind of cleared the air there. But, yeah, I mean, it was a very stressful unpleasant situation and and yeah nothing to do with what was actually in the book beyond yeah which, just which legal I, as as i as i read the book i i thought i mean particularly that chapter on the intruder and poor pretty eddie which has got some some i mean you're dealing with racist characters there yeah, for one yeah. thing and you and you don't hold back either and i read that and i thought oh i wonder if this was one of the causes of the problem but but it, it appears not so yeah uh, uh, you know i thought people might think that and yeah. so <laughs> because yeah. you know, as you say, it's a fairly incendiary, incendiary chapter. 
Yeah, uh, can can we can we go back to the uh, the the early chapters of the book, Sean? Because the first eight or nine chapters cover um, early American history. You're sort of working through a period from, I suppose, roughly from the Pilgrims through to the early 1900s, the, the sort of wild bunch era. And um, now, what was it? conscious on your part that you wanted to sort of tell the history of America in those early chapters through through these movies? Or did it come the other way around? Did you say, well, let's look at the list of films that I want to do. I want to include The Witch and I want to include The Blair Witch Project and I want to include Ravenous. And did did which way around did it work for you? Was it was it history first or was it the fact that you'd got this bunch of movies that were all set across this sort of two or three hundred year period in the past. It's 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 sometimes a bit difficult to remember some of the specifics now, but I think I think as I can best recall, what happened was that I I thought it might start with the High Plains Drifter chapter. I thought maybe that I was just going to do that and sort of bring use that as a kind of conduit from the past into the present. And I wrote that and I kind of thought, no, there's there's more here. I need to sort of go further back uh, and actually talk about the country itself and how it was formed. And, and, and so then I started looking at kind of some of the stuff I could use. And, you know, I always figured that the witch would be in there somewhere. But then I started doing a deep dive into like horror westerns and kind of thought, well, you know, the American West is such an, an important part of the kind of history of America, both the reality of it and the fictional mm. representation of it, that I kind of thought, oh, yeah, I really have to kind of like do a bit of a dive into this. And and so I wanted, you know, did my own little mini Western sequence. And it was kind of knowing that I had the space to do that because I always knew that this was going to be a bigger book. So I kind of thought, all right, I can be a bit more expansive. I can stop for a bit of a kind of, you know, History of the West in 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 in, in five easy genre movie steps, you know. And I, I suppose because this is a, a sort of fantasy America that you're dealing with in in your own terms, you can you can then once you've introduced the Western, you can you can touch on the fantasy West of the spaghetti Western as well, and and bring in these sort of non-American movies set in this yeah. sort of heightened version of America. Oh yeah, no, absolutely, and I mean that is you know using something like the great silence i mean i mean that is a movie that does as much as it wasn't shot in america it does use specific moments in american history so it is kind of tied to an identifiable history even if the movie itself is a fantasy so it was kind of interesting to use bits like that and you know uh, some the historical stuff that's referred to in that chapter is what like, actually happened is true you know, and then, but you were just weaving this sort of fantasy around it. It's it's kind of nice to use bits, nuggets of reality along the way, but to sort of yeah, then surround them with all this kind of like weird, far out stuff. Yeah, and given given what the character Loco gets away with in the Great Silence, it's it's wonderful that you give him his comeuppance at long. Yeah, that was kind of satisfying. I was just I was just going to ask about. But- so yeah, it's right. But that early period there. I mean, as, as much as you say it's like it's your own little western, it's kind of it, it definitely felt like it was like okay, well, it's not just the people 
that are the problem with American politics or whatever, things like that. It's rooted right in the actual birth of the nation and land, land built on blood and built on on, on slaughtering, <laughs> slaughtering American Native American Indians. And, you know, it, that that really, when you're reading it initially, you're thinking, oh, is it, is it going to tie in? And then as it seeps through, you think, oh, okay, yeah, it's atmosphere. It's building that world, a different type of world from what we know of America. You know, it's, it's the... the the world of the of the book, fictional world. How much of a conscious decision was it to jump from that period into the thirties and then into the sixties and seventies, with with those characters coming through? You see, like you got your Harry uh, Harry Callaghan character coming through, and this, this is the the vampire character from the western. Uh, Drake, Drake Roby from Drake. Yeah. The Undead. And, yeah. and, and the near-dark characters and things like that. How much was it, was it, okay, well, these are the characters that are moving the story through. Was that a deliberate decision with those characters? Yeah, I mean, it, it, that, that certainly started off with the High Plains Drifter chapter mm. because that was, you know, the way that character functions in the book is that he's kind of emblematic of a certain you know, portrayal of Americanism and what that sort of sense of justice means and, you know, and the sense that, you know, that you can solve things with a gun. And 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 so bringing that character in the modern day was very deliberate in that sense because it was like, look, this is where this stuff comes from and it's still with us now. Yeah, yeah. So that character was kind of, you know, yeah, very, very symbolic of that. And so with some of the other, when, you know, when I decided to sort of continue along that road and sort of, and do the kind of bit of a little history lesson, it's like, yeah, you know, you, you, there were sort of definitely other characters that you like, oh, well, okay, I can see, I can bring this stuff across, see how the seeds of what America is now lies back in, 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 in those periods, in that, in that history, talk about what America is, how it was created, you know, the notion of, freedom in america the american dream all this kind of thing it's you know yeah you're sort of like looking at where all this stuff started and and how how it's been brought into the modern day yeah was um was there any particular characters that you thought okay i'm going to redeem this character or i'm like, like you just said about the um the the character from <sighs> brain uh the character goes to comeuppance the Great Silence, yeah. Great Silence, yeah. thank you. Sorry, yeah. God, brain, don't worry. That, 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 you're satisfying giving that character. I felt like the, the character from The Shining, the uh, Shelley Duvall's character, that felt like a re- redemptive arc with that. It's like, oh, I want to take that character and give her something because everything gets taken from her in that movie. And it feels like that was, yeah. a, that was a goal. It's that, That's absolutely the example I would have used. With that, with that character, I kind of wanted to... Um, you know, some people criticise The Shining for being misogynistic. Certainly Stephen King has done. Um, I don't necessarily feel that way. I think Kubik's doing something very specific in that film. Um, and all of the characters are kind of like archetypes to some degree. At the same time, I kind of thought, well, I want to sort of, yeah, retrieve that character a bit and and make her a bit more dimensional. And, yeah, give her a kind of slightly redemptive arc, especially when, you know, because it, because that because that chapter sort of plays off The Shining against The Lighthouse, which mm-hmm. is, you know, a film that certainly seems to have been influenced by The Shining to some degree, and it's also very much about kind of 
toxic masculinity, you kind of think, well, if I'm going to, you know, put Wendy in that world, I kind of want to sort of take her character beyond what she is in The Shining, which is kind of, you know, a victim. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, I'm not just going to do that all over again. I have to take her somewhere new. And so it's a case of like her finally working through those issues uh, and, you know, yeah, commenting on what the character is in The Shining, but then also taking it somewhere further. Yeah. No. And I think even even when you bring Jack Torrance back briefly, he's, he's very much your own version of Jack that fits into your world. And again, I think you you absolutely nail his voice. And uh, but but yeah, this is a sort of. Um, a, a Jack who isn't there—he's he's sort of inside Wendy's head—and uh, um, yeah. again, it, it's 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 bringing a character from from fiction, from a book and a movie, but making him your own. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's you kind of want to comment upon what's there, but at the same time, if you're not, you know, taking the characters further or reinterpreting them, then there's not really any point in doing it. If if it's sure. just yeah, if you're just replicating what's already in the films, there doesn't seem to me to be much point. It's like you've got to you've got to take it and twist it somehow and take it somewhere unexpected. Yeah. I guess that I guess that kind of what elevates this above fan fiction. I mean, so people say, "Oh, well, uh, this is book where show." Oh, it's just fan fiction. It's like it's so much not. It's so much not fan yeah, fiction. This, this is this yeah. is a this is about something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna deny that there is like some of that fun is definitely there in terms of playing with these these characters. But yeah, there's there's hopefully a lot more going on in uh, in the book than just sort of fanishness. Yeah, as much absolutely. as yeah, yeah. I mean, you you even at one uh, there are a couple of points. One one in particular that I'll mention um, where you change rather than just take a movie and then sort of do the Sean Hogan thing about of of oh this is what happens next or this is what happened before that. With Eyes of Laura Mars, you actually change the events that we see on screen in the film. You have the characters um, getting involved with Travis Bickle. They get in the back of Travis's cab and uh, um, Travis sort of falls for Laura the way that he falls for for Sybil Shepherd in in Taxi Driver. And then the outcome of that is is surprisingly different to what we we know from the movie. And um, how easy is it to do that? Because you, you, your, your model tends to be, as I say, to, uh, to sort of either look at what happened before the movie or what happened afterwards in, in your own mind. And here, here, here's an example where you've actually changed the on-screen events. Um, yeah, I mean, sometimes I, I kind of feel as though I've got licence to change things or reinterpret things or leave certain things out. It's, the, you know, especially when you're dealing with films that, that have a lot of sequels. I mean, because, you know, there's so many franchises tie themselves up in ridiculous knots. And so sometimes you just want to go, I'm just going to use this film. I'm not going to like worry about the rest of them because that ties me in too much of a ridiculous mythology that doesn't make any sense anyway. So, I mean, it is very, I am a bit of a magpie in that sometimes I'll just use certain films or certain characters and play around with them, you know. Again, there's like the whole Laura Mars thing. I had no idea that she was going to turn up in the book and then it just kind of happened. And so I just sort of went with it and thought, well, this is only going to go one way and it kind of needs to go the full hog now, you know, the way that it didn't go in Taxi Driver, but we need to see that where Travis is ultimately going to go. 
and yeah so that that just kind of happened without it really being properly planned yeah yeah your your use of uh, reno miller from driller killer is um, <laughs> hey, that, hey that rhymes um yeah but re- the, the way you use reno you 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 could easily have done a couple of chapters on him because he's a fascinating figure and yet you just drop him in every now and then as like the the patsy the the, the name that parallax used to sort of explain away all of the, the the sort of bigger events that are going on, how how difficult was it not to, to to sort of keep Reno as a sort of background figure? He might not even be real in your book, you know. He might be this invented <laughs> name that Parallax have, have created. How 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 tough was it not to write a chapter about Reno? Um, yeah, I, I mean that's the kind of thing. It's sort of like well, if but if if I did that with everyone, then the book would never end. You know, <laughs> it, it it was it was kind of nice the way he kind of kept popping up but yet was never a full character in the book and i like that i think it gives the book a certain texture when you're just getting these names that pop up every now and then but they're not it just gives you a sense of a bigger world um i mean yeah there's so many films i could have included and and wanted to include and either just couldn't figure out what i wanted to do with them exactly or just after a certain point though i don't have the space <laughs> you know i, just, yeah, I, I can't I, I think, keep making this the, book longer and longer yeah the, the book we've got flows beautifully and mm. i think it's uh, um yeah you 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 picked on all the right movies one 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 thing one thing i love is when you you you, you sort of go to extremes and you throw in a movie or you put characters in a situation that even even in this world and even having read uh, three mothers one father and england screaming you take us to a few unexpected places here like introducing characters like the creature from the black lagoon <laughs> or or um where you reintroduce uh, Johnny Depp's character from The Ninth Gate and you have him and his new rescuer, who I won't name, ending up involved in the action of a particular movie, which we we certainly wouldn't have expected at the start of the chapter. So, again, how, how satisfying was it for you to sort of take that extra couple of steps and say, the, 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 are, are the readers going to buy this or not? You know, are, are they going to accept that suddenly one of my characters has met the creature from the Black Lagoon? Yeah, um, I mean, again, it was, uh, we, we obviously we spoke before about not really dealing so much with the kind of universal monsters and that kind of thing. But uh, obviously, Creature from the Black Lagoon was was one that could conceivably fit into the framework of the book. And so he was kind of, floating around for a while and I was sort of thought I wouldn't I don't quite know what to do with it and then that idea just came to me and I thought oh yeah of course that's you know the the creature's always been here and he'll carry on being here after everything's gone yeah so he's he's like beyond America and outside America sort of thing yeah yeah. very symbolic Um, and has you know has certainly been affected by America but will kind of outlast it yeah and the idea for that chapter just hit me, and 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 uh, it's one of my one of my favourite chapters in the book, and certainly other people that have read it have said that as well, because it, it has a slightly different feel to it. Yes, it does. Yeah, yeah. You know, so no, that was that was something I was very happy with. The Corso chapter, again, that was that, that was something that um, I just really enjoyed writing that piece in Three Mothers, One Father. And it suddenly occurred to me, I was like, oh, I, I could pick up with him and see what he's doing now. And because it's such a great through line to sort of deal with various films, that character, because he's a book dealer, you, you, it's like there are so many kind of cursed books in horror cinema 
that you can just plug him into any of these stories yeah, yeah. works. And, I, and so I kind of suddenly thought, oh, well, you know, that way I can, I can, you know, deal with the Fulci movies and I can put Corso in there. And it's, you know. We're, we're, de- we're delighted. We're delighted. It also gives you the chance to bring uh, Dick Miller's Walter Paisley yes. yeah, as yeah. well, which is, has <laughs> got to happen, got to happen. Um, now, you, you, you've based a couple of chapters or certainly started off a couple of chapters based around uh, Oz Perkins films. And uh, yes. so you, you, you obviously love uh, Osgood Perkins and, and his stuff. And of course, he's got his own connection to, to uh, great American horror history through through his dad, you know. But I wanted to ask about those two chapters because I I, th- I think they're both fascinating. First of all, um, the one that develops into the sort of self help group for possession victims, uh, which I haven't actually got a question about that. I just wanted to say, Sean, you're a genius. <laughs> I, I, I read that chapter and I thought, why has nobody ever thought of this before? This is brilliant. And I, I, I love the fact you, you bring in the Nora Benson character from, uh, God, what's the film? The, uh, the, the, the Joe Delaney. Uh, yeah, Possession of Joel Delaney, of course, yeah. Shirley MacLaine. And, uh, and, and, I think she, uh, Mrs. Benson, the way you use her, is the best example of, of, of you showing us what's happened to America in recent years, the way that the Republican Party has has gradually sort of uh, um, got inside the heads of not not just gun-toting NRA fanatics from, from, from Texas and Alabama, but of ordinary people who might regard themselves as liberals, um, yeah. But but uh, as suddenly suddenly there's Mrs. Benson and she's played by Shirley MacLaine who's like the ultimate liberal you know yeah. and uh, and again of course connected with Parallax through through her brother you know and uh, so you've got all this stuff going on but it's great how she becomes the mouthpiece briefly in that chapter for for the sort of MAGA generation and yet she's she's a rational. Everyday ordinary person, she's been through this whole sort of possession thing with her family, of course. But um, other than that, she's she's a sort of fairly normal, down to earth person. Would regard herself politically politically as a liberal, and here she is, sort of banging on the table for Stilson. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, one of the interesting things about that movie, which uh, I I would have liked to have included more of, but that part of the point about that chapter is to sort of deal with this whole possession subgenre in kind of like one neat little ball. <laughs> so um, hence you've got quite a lot of different movies being included there. Um, but I think Possession of Joel Delaney is a really interesting movie and, and quite underrated. But one of the things it's very good on is is class, um, which, which is not always a subject that gets dealt with properly in American films or is not recognised as such. But I think if you look at her character in the position of Joel Delaney, she is sort of like on the face of it liberal, but you can see a lot of these kind of this sort of deep seated racism lurking underneath. I guess so, yeah. yeah. And it's all the sort of polite face of, you know, the things we dare not talk about. And you sort of think, well, given what happens to her and her family in that film, it more probably wouldn't take much to turn her into that kind of Republican, you know, a few decades down the line. And that, again, it just kind of goes back to sort of like looking at a film and extrapolating from it, sort of saying, well, where might these characters end up? 
And that seemed to me to make perfect sense that she would, as an older woman, would become that kind of character and someone who might go, well, you know, Greg Stilson's going to sort stuff out that needs sorting out, you know. Yeah, so so it is it is an example of this, the the you know, the old the old saying, you get more right wingers, you get older sort of thing. And here's his proof of how that can happen. Yeah, which is which is a, which is a cliche and certainly isn't yeah, always yeah. true. But I certainly think with that character, you can you can look at her in that film and go, well, you know, 30, 40 years down the line, she might be quite a different kind of person. And you can see the seeds of it in the film, definitely. Yeah, I mean, and also it's not so much about like just getting older, getting more right wing. It's like people are shaped by events, and you yeah. you have severe events like that. <laughs> if, if if all you had was like a, a facade of, of liberalism at that point after those events that's getting thrown away and you and and you don't care anymore and i think one of the big things about this last 10 years or so is is that people people stopping saying i shouldn't say things like that in public and just saying things in public and i think that that really comes across with that character i think Great. Okay. Well, it's good to good. glad to hear it. <laughs> the the other Oz Perkins film that you reference is uh, I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House. And uh, um, now me and Adam have both dabbled a bit in writing ourselves. We've, we've both written movie scripts and done a few short stories. We're, we're nowhere on your level, nowhere near your level, Sean, but uh, don't worry about the competition. But uh, <laughs> um, well, you, you've obviously inspired a lot of writers with your work. Um, in my own fiction, and for, for years and years, I've had this idea about doing a story about a story where I, I wanted to write this thing where the story has a consciousness and it, 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 it's aware that it's it's written and it's on the page and then as it goes on you get to page two and page three and it's loving its freedom and it's loving its life on the page and then you get halfway through the story and it realizes the reader's getting near the end and it starts panicking and it starts sort of Keep reading. Go back to page 17. You know, keep reading. I don't want to die. I don't want to end. And I've never been able to actually put that down on paper and nail it and get it started in a way that I I would want to. And here in this chapter on I Am the Pretty Thing, you introduce the the Stephen King character from uh, 1408 and other characters that you introduce. And you absolutely nail this thing that I've been struggling with for years. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's slightly different. It's not quite the same as my idea, but it's this concept that halfway through the story, the characters realise they're in a story. They realise they're not real. Why Why did you write that? And Because and, it, it, to me, it doesn't seem to quite fit. It, 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 it's, it's wonderful in itself, but it doesn't seem to quite fit the narrative and fit in with the sense of Twilight being a novel. It seems a piece on its own. Well, I am a big fan of Oz Perkins, so I wanted to include him in the book, definitely. Um, and I think, you know, I, I had the idea fairly early on for the February chapter and the sort of possession support group and all that kind of thing. So I knew that was going to be in there. And then I just started thinking about I Am The Pretty Thing. And I was like, well, you know, people might question why I've put this in here. But I just, it's such an interesting, enigmatic film that I that is Marmite for a lot of people. I know a lot of people don't like it, but yeah. I kind of felt compelled to give it its due because I just find it so fascinating. And I think I just almost started writing that chapter to find out what I was going to write about it because I don't think I was entirely sure what I was going to write about it and 
I'm pretty sure that I didn't even know who was writing the chapter until I got a ways into it. And I was like, oh, of course, it has to be. Yeah, it's this guy and he's going to become. And then I was like, oh, of course, it's about it's about stories. The whole chapter is about stories. And I so I suppose in that sense, that's why it's in there. Yeah, because it's it's kind of another layer of meta in this book that's constructed of stories about storytelling and, and all this kind of thing. I mean, not every obviously not every chapter connects to the larger whole, but I hope it's uh, I hope they all kind of earn their keep, you know, both in terms of just like a story and uh, and offering sort of different perspectives on the breadth of American genre cinema and all this kind of thing. Now we've 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 not talked yet about the about the big big connection. Though we've not talked about the connection to England screaming and the thread throughout this new book uh, involving uh, Damien Thorne's return and yep. his nemesis John Mauler. So yep. uh, once you'd made the decision to to cover American cinema, you 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 clearly couldn't let go of these characters. We had to find out what happened to them from the cliffhanger at the end of uh, yep. England screaming, but. You find a way to thread them through this narrative as well. So they're, they're sort of English interlopers sort of thing in in this vast American saga. Yeah, I mean, with with Damien, it's that was kind of an easy thing to do because he's sort of a transatlantic character anyway, yeah. and and he's not tied to any specific nationality. And you know that character stands for so much of the kind of contemporary ills that are that, that the books are about. Um, both in terms of you know politics and corporatism and all this kind of thing, so you know it was it was obvious that he had to continue because he were you know you can just plug him into America and he still works and and the character's background is there with you know with the, the thorn as a company and all this kind of thing, so that was fine you know with Mauler obviously yes that's much more of an English character but because I'd sort of built him up as the opponent in the first book. I knew that that sort of showdown at the end of the first book would have to be resolved to some degree, but it was sort of like, well, I know, you know, at the same time, I don't think Mauler's quite done yet. And, <laughs> and so it was, um, I, I knew that, uh, he, yeah, he would, he would be back. I just kind of had to figure out exactly how and how that was all going to resolve itself. And, you know, um, without getting too heavily into spoilers, the sort of place that the book is in uh, that is left at the end, you know, I didn't want Mauler to ever be a hero either. I think he's a fascinating character and there are, you know, I think as is clear in the first book, there's, there's stuff that he says and believes that I can identify with, but at the same time, he's still a monster. And so the fact that he might be, you know, a kind of a corrective to what Damien the Thorn represents doesn't mean that he's not a monster. And so I never wanted to lose sight of that either. And I just, yeah, I just kind of found them sort of two fascinating characters to write about. So they, yeah, they they couldn't quite go away. I think one of the other things, and we talked about like some of the things that loom large in this movie, like Stephen King looms large yeah. in horror yeah. cinema anyway, full stop in American horror cinema and literature. The band's stupidly prolific, so there's no reason why not. Was there any, was there any thought on your part when you're thinking, well, 
I can't use that character. I can't use this character because I've already got 15 Stephen King characters in this book. So <laughs> like, like I'm just writing it. I'm writing a best of Stephen King here. Um, was it, oh, did that ever cross your mind? Because it's like, obviously, you've got like you got the Jack Torrance and, and Wendy Torrance, but equally, Greg Stilson from the yeah, Dead I Zone. Mean, he's, he's kind of unavoidable. Um, you know, yeah, I, like, okay. I mean, I, I grew up loving King. I'm not yeah. going to deny that. I still read him now. Um, you know, he looms pretty large over American horror. Uh, even though, you know, a lot of the films that have been made from his work are terrible. Yeah. Uh, um, I mean, hopefully I, I picked out a few of the better ones. <laughs> but there's just, he's written so many kind of iconic characters that you just find them popping up. Mm. And, you know, even when you need a little throwaway character, he's often kind of written someone that, will, that, that does the job. So it's, you know, so much of what American horror is, I think, is kind of down to him. Yeah. And so it was it was kind of inescapable, really. So I, I just sort of went with it, you know. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's there's a lot of other stuff in there too. So, you know, hopefully it's not kind of overbalanced, although, you know, yeah, there's certainly a fair amount of king in there. Yeah, no, as I say, it's it is kind of unavoidable, isn't it, really? Which is such a such a key player in horror uh, for the last 50 years, you know. So yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's as much of an auteur as as some of the other directors who are in there yeah. kind of a number of times, and I think you sort of have to kind of you acknowledge that, really. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's one one of the reasons why we've not had that many great Stephen King films because he is such an auteur in his own right. Yeah, uh, bringing in another auteur to to try and direct that is kind of maybe clashing, maybe. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> so um, I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but it doesn't end well. Uh, <laughs> for the world <laughs> and obviously as soon as you finish these books you think okay well when's the next one coming out and you talked about doing a little adjunct for us for us exploitation kind of uh, um, smaller book are you going to go back to any of those areas to do a third book it's it's possible it partly depends on how this book does if there's you know and still an appetite for it if it does as well as the first one did you know obviously the last minute change of publisher was a slight concern for me and the hope that, the, you know, we'd be able to sort of get the book out there and get it publicized. Um, but obviously doing stuff like this obviously helps. So thank you. So, yeah, I mean, it's partly all right. Well, if does the, if the book does well enough to warrant more, but yeah, I've got ideas. I mean, I've certainly not ruled out the possibility of doing a kind of historical England screaming and going back and doing all the kind of, gothic stuff that I didn't really do in the first book. A lot of people have said to me they'd love to see a, a more expansive Euro horror book rather than just the little one, you know, which yeah. again is certainly possible. Yeah, I mean, I really loved, I really loved Three Mothers, One Father, but I kept thinking I would have even loved it even more if it was a big, massive, chunky book. You don't mind 600 pages of that. I literally don't mean, because right I love your European horror stuff. So it's like, it was like, this is right on my street. This. Why isn't it 600 pages? <laughs> yeah, at that time, I had no idea that anyone would ever let me write more of these. So I kind of thought, well, I'll just do a little Euro horror one and then mm. I can at least say I've done it, you know. Um, but now I'm like, well, I could go back and do a, a big one, you know, if I can just sort the, of... Um, the, the Oz one is, is right up our street we we, we love we love films like patrick and and there i i mean you know without without trying to anticipate anything there's 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 your john mauler character right there you know but, uh, <laughs> um but yeah i mean adam adam i'm sure we we can't we can't wait for this can we oh yeah no absolutely i'm i'm i'm, I'm already ready to put the order in all right well um, i hope you like that it's it, again it, it takes a slightly different approach in that it's almost like 
a kind of an anthology story and that it has a wraparound. It has sort of two characters binding the whole thing together with a number of individual stories along the way, but it's, it, it takes a slightly different structure. So, you know, I'd be interested to see what you both think of it when it's, when it's ready. Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to, to, to reading about Donald Pleasant, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> like that's like that, that, that character um, is, is worth, worth. Now is, 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 is that the Donald Pleasant of Waking Fright or the Donald Pleasant of Barry McKenzie holds his own? Well, w- w- Waking Fright, uh, actually, Darren. <laughs> well, I'm not, I'm not against the Barry McKenzie, uh, Barry McKenzie uh, look at. It's fine. There's as much horror in that as any other film. So. It will. It's true. I, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't dare go there. Put it that way. <laughs> cool. Okay. So, so Twilight Screaming is out now. It is. Yeah. It's available to order direct from the publisher or from Amazon or Waterstones or wherever you choose to purchase your books from. Fantastic. So go out there and order it. And while you're at it, order England Screaming and Three Mothers, One Father. Why not? They're all available, so go for it. Thank you so much for joining us, Sean. Um, hopefully we'll we'll try and get you back up to Paris Cinema later on in the year when we can do a proper proper Q&A in front of an audience and, I'd love to, and talk about the new one, yeah. Cool, good stuff. Right, thank you, Daryl. Thank you, John. Take care, everyone, and we will see you soon.